The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So have you ever had one of those times when you, you wake up and all of a sudden you find yourself doing something that you either thought you'd never be doing, or maybe it's decades too early for you to be doing that? Like you wake up and all of a sudden you're in a situation and you think, how in the world did I get here? Like, let me give you an example. A couple of years ago, it's late at night, I'm sleeping, and I'm just, you know, completely and totally out. It's like the middle of the night, and all of a sudden I wake up because there's just all of this noise right outside my bedroom window. And as I'm startled from my deep sleep, I realize my neighbors are outside just having a crazy party. Like they're outside, I, you know, I get out of bed, I shuffle over to the window and I look out and they're back there like the music's up real loud, they're all dancing, they're shooting off fireworks. I'm like, what is going on? And you know when you wake up in the middle of the night, you're usually not the most gracious form of yourself? So I decided to do the best thing possible that I can do in that moment because I'm not only frustrated that I woke up, but I've also got little kids and I don't want them to wake up because it's a whole hassle to try and get them to go back to sleep. So I go ahead and do the best thing I know how to do. I walk right over to my dresser, and I decide, I'm going to call the police. I'll just call it and report a little disturbance, and that'll work out. So I pick up my phone, I turn on the screen to go ahead and call the police, and right there on the top of my phone, I see it's 10.30 p.m. <laughs> on New Year's Eve. And I think, when did that happen that I became this crotchety old guy on New Year's Eve? I go to bed early. So I just, I'm all mad, but of course I couldn't go back to sleep, so I just put on my house coat and slippers and go over and sit in my recliner, and I, it was just bad. I woke up, and all of a sudden I'm in this situation that I thought I wouldn't be in for decades to come, but I'm this crotchety old man. And maybe you've had a moment like that, or, or maybe you've thought about, we often, Stephanie and I, my wife, we talk about if we could go back in time and uh, talk to ourselves in high school and kind of give some sort of advice. Have you ever thought about that? Like, what would you say to yourself if you could show up and talk to high school you? Like, it's okay, you'll meet somebody, I promise. But calm down, it'll be okay. Or maybe you go back to college, you, right? And you hold them by the shoulders and you tell them, you were in the best shape of your life. Enjoy it, right? Have you ever thought about that? What if you could go back 10 years? It's 2006, maybe you just started a business. You could encourage yourself about how that business is gonna continue to grow. Or maybe you could give yourself some timely advice and start to diversify your investments because the country's about to go into a giant recession. But have you ever thought about maybe going into the future instead? You could go into the future and talk to yourself 10 years from now and find out how do things work out? You know, how does this work out? Does my career actually take off? Does this company survive? You find out, does the child ever leave the house and get a job or they live here forever? Like you could ask yourself these kinds of questions. And in a unique way, you could encourage yourself knowing that future because you know yourself better than anyone else. So knowing that either in the past or in the future, you could be encouraging to yourself. And I think that's important because when we find out how it ends or if we're able to see in the future, we have a certain boldness about us because we know how things are going to happen. We have an idea of how things are going to play out. And one of my favorite passages of Scripture is very similar to that idea. It's written from an older man who's kind of at the end of his career. He's writing to a much younger man who's in the beginning of his career. And he gives him some timely advice that helps him see how things are going to pan out. And he helps encourage him so he can have more boldness as he's going into the next season of his life. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look at a a place in 2 Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 1. You can go ahead and turn there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. It'll be up on the screens in just a second. 
Uh, but as we're looking at this, this letter written to a young pastor named Timothy, it's important to know a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes. So this guy, Timothy, uh, he's a pastor of a church in a place called Ephesus, and he's this young guy. But see, Timothy started with a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Um, which was very important at that time because that meant that he didn't fit in either camp squarely. He had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, so they're kind of opposing ideas. And one thing that we see in Scripture is we don't see anything else about his father other than the fact that he was Greek, and we actually see other people stepping in his life later, which leads us to believe his father most likely passed away when Timothy was young. But a little bit later in life, he meets a guy named Paul, and we know him as the Apostle Paul. So he meets this guy named Paul, and Paul didn't have any kids of his own, and there was something unique about Timothy that Paul, Paul kind of takes him under his wing as if he's his own child. There are actually certain rituals or rites of passage that you see in the Jewish faith that the dad would have done with the son that we see Paul stepping in and performing with Timothy instead. So he's a very fatherly figure for Timothy. We actually read, as, as we look through history, we see that Paul brings Timothy along with him in many of his missionary journeys. And a lot of times Paul's on a journey and he started a church in another place and he's somewhere else and he'll write a letter to encourage or instruct that church and he'll send it with Timothy. So he not only shows up in letters to Timothy or in the history, but he also shows up in letters to other churches as Paul's talking about Timothy and about how much he loves him and wants the church to care for him. So there's this very unique relationship between Paul and Timothy, which is really interesting. And what we're going to look at today is the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. There's another one. It's called 1 Timothy. And that's the first letter Paul wrote to Timothy. And that one's very different. That one, Paul had been on a missionary journey with Timothy, and they started this church. And then Paul took Timothy aside and said, Timothy, God is calling you to lead this church. He kind of commissions him. He says, this is your post. You are now the pastor of this church, and I want you to stay here and lead this church as Paul continues. And later in his missionary journey, Paul writes the first letter to Timothy, and it looks a lot like his normal letters to the church. He starts out with something bold, and he starts out, you know, proclaiming great things about God, and then he starts instructing Timothy how to lead this church. He helps him think through how to pick leaders, and he helps him think through how to set up different structures and teach people in the right way. It's a very good, instructive letter. But this other letter, 2 Timothy, is very different. It has a very different tone through the whole thing. And Paul's no longer on a missionary journey. In this letter, he's writing it from a dungeon in Rome. See, Paul's in jail, and he'd been jailed before, but this one, his attitude's very different. See, at this point in history, Nero had already started persecuting Christians, and Paul knows what his sentence is going to be. He just doesn't know how quickly it's coming. He knows he's going to die. He's going to be executed for his faith. So Paul, in this dark dungeon in Rome, with just a little bit of light, is writing this letter to his beloved son, Timothy, who's a pastor in another part of the world. And instead of opening with normal, bold, cheerful things, Paul would say, he opens saying things like, Timothy, I remember your tears and your sincere faith, and I thank God for you. And he closes the letter with, Timothy, come quickly, come before winter, because Paul knows he's going to die soon. So you have this very tender, tender letter to his son from a guy who's been on these long missionary journeys who knows he's at the end of his life. So what do you say to somebody when you're at the end of your life and you want to encourage them? We're going to take a look in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're looking at verse 7. Excuse me, verse 6. So I'll go ahead and start there in verse 6. It says this, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
This is really interesting because Timothy and friend Timothy and Paul are good friends at this point. Paul knows him really well. And Paul, he was a more dynamic guy. He would walk into a city and he would command the attention of pretty much everybody there as he would start preaching and everybody would watch him. He would debate with the philosophers that were in the top of their game in that city. But Timothy, from, we see from history, is a much more timid person. He's much more mild-mannered than Paul was. And now we see Paul writing this letter, encouraging him to fan into flame this gift of God that you received. Because God, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control. And this seems to be really important for Paul. Maybe this was a regular encouragement that he had toward Timothy. Maybe as they were on journeys together, Paul would remind Timothy, Timothy, remember, you don't have to be timid. You don't have to be fearful about this. God's given you a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Maybe that was a regular part of their conversation in a way that Paul was kind of taking Timothy under his wing and training him. Or maybe this is Paul in a dungeon, very carefully penning the last words that he has to his son. And he's saying these very particular things. It's not about fear, but it's about power, love, and self-control. And as you start to peel back the layers, and you start to look at these, what does he mean by a spirit of power? Well, most of the time we struggle to remember this. But Paul's trying to encourage Timothy. And as you dig deeper into what Paul's saying, what he's saying is, Timothy, when you put your faith in Jesus, God gave you incredible power. Because you have to remember, God gives you the Holy Spirit. That's the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead. And now God has given that to you. Timothy, you don't have to be fearful or timid. You can be powerful because of that. And here's what that means. In circumstances where you're not sure what's going to happen, or you feel like you're in over your head, Paul's reminding him, you have power in those circumstances. Not because you feel strong, but because God is with you and he's given you the Holy Spirit. So you have power in these circumstances. One of my favorite authors said this. It's a fantastic quote. He says, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen to use nobodies because of their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. All through history, God has chosen nobodies because they can rely on God's power working in their life. And that's what he's telling Timothy. Timothy, you don't have to be afraid. You have power. But he doesn't leave it with just power. He also says you have love. And as we look at God's love through Scripture and through history, and we look at it manifested in Jesus, we realize it's a radical love. It's not just the ability and the capacity to have love, but it's love for not just those near you, but those who seemingly don't deserve it. Or maybe those who are, who are attacking you or those who are your enemy. You can love them as well. And as you grow as a Christian and the Holy Spirit starts to work in your life and starts to manifest the spirit that he's given you, he starts to show you that you can love people the way God loves them. You stop looking at them based on the way you feel, but you start looking at the way God feels about them and God cares about them. And you start to have compassion toward them. And that's what Paul's saying. Timothy, it's not just about power, but it's also about love. Because if you had just power, you'd, like, you'd rule over them. And you'd, be, you'd just be rude to them, and you'd be like the sin police for your church, and you'd come around and tell everybody what's wrong and what they need to hear and everything. But you also need to understand, Timothy, that God has given you love as well, and now you have compassion. And as you look at people, you can see them the way that God loves them and have compassion on them and care for them. So these two balance each other out. But he doesn't stop there. He also talks about self-control. He says you have a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. And here's what self-control is. It's it's discipline. 
But it's not just discipline. It's also like discipline under pressure. It's being able to be level-headed. You know, Timothy's in a situation, he had a lot to fear with his church. There are outside influences that are attacking his church that are trying to discredit him. Maybe Timothy looks at his own life and he realizes, you know, I was never a religious heavyweight in my culture, and how am I supposed to be their leader now and instruct them in, in all of this because I've never been there. And these other voices are louder than mine because I'm not really a loud person. I can't command a room like Paul can. But what Paul's saying is, Timothy, you have the spirit of self-control. You can have discipline in these situations. When things are going crazy, you can keep a level head. And that doesn't come from just biting your tongue or your cheek and hoping that it'll go through, but that comes from a reliance on God. He's saying, Timothy, you can rely on God because it's not just about your skill in these situations, but it's about God taking control. You know this is his church. You know that this is his plan. You know this is his mission that he's called you on. So you can relax and know that God is in control. And you can have power and love in those situations and be level-headed and have self-control because it's God who's at work in your life. These are incredible things. Early in my life, I read this verse and it became kind of a mantra for me. It became something that really helped me because I grew up very, very shy. I mean, like really, 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 really shy. Like, my grandmother talked to me one time, and I turned beet red and, like, clammed up because I didn't want to talk to her, even though I knew her well. I don't think you, like, I actually died once because I was so shy. So I'm in sixth grade, right? Sixth grade is just a horrible time, no matter who you are, because sixth grade is just awkward. But I'm in sixth grade, and I can remember it clearly. I actually died when I was in sixth grade because I was so shy. Um, You know, in sixth grade, a lot of people go through growth spurts at different times, and um, I grew a ton that summer. And I'm the third out of four, so I had a lot of hand-me-downs. And when you grow a lot and you're wearing a lot of hand-me-downs, your hand-me-downs don't necessarily go all the way down, right? So I'm wearing pants that are like this short, and they're not like cool capris or anything like that. Like they're baggy jeans that are 10 inches too short on my legs because I grew too quickly. And the other problem was I weighed somewhere between 12 and 15 pounds. Uh, so I was just this really skinny kid with these baggy short jeans. So it was just bad. Sixth grade is hard. But I remember the first time I walked into the student ministry in this new student ministry that I was the youngest guy there. I was so nervous, but I knew my good friend was going to be there, my wingman. He was going to be there. You know, I, I knew who he was, so I could go hang out with him. He was also in sixth grade. I had grown a ton, but he really hadn't. And I knew he was going to be there. So I walk into this room, and you know, as a sixth grader, when you enter a room, you don't really have a commanding presence. You know, I open up the door, and there's this room full of like 150 high school students. They're all a whole lot cooler than I am. And when you're in sixth grade, you don't command presence. You kind of slink into a room, you know, very quickly kind of go over to where you need to go. So I open up the door, and here's this whole room of people, and I see over on the side there's a table, and my friends are hanging out on the table. They're all like, you know, there's this big table, and they're all just kind of leaning up against the table. And there's my wingman on the end, so I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go hang out with him. So I walk over, and he's leaning on the table, and I just decide to go ahead and sit down on the table. And I immediately regret that decision. As all 12 pounds of me lands on the table, the table gives way, and in the loudest crash possible that reverberates through the room, the table just falls into a million pieces, and all my friends who are leaning on it just kind of stand up. They weren't putting all their weight, they just kind of stand up. But there I am, I sat down, I'm going down with the ship, I'm on the ground, the table is reverberating through the entire room, and everybody in the room turns and looks at me. And I died right there (laughs) on the ground. I absolutely died. And to make matters worse... Everybody starts clapping. And the guy who started the clapping 
was my wingman. How great is that? You actually know him. He's a pastor in town here. His name's Pastor Roby. He was my wingman, and he let me down. He started the clapping. It was horrible. I actually died in that moment. It was really bad. Not too long after that, I read this verse, and I realized I didn't have to be so fearful and timid anymore. I didn't need to be the person who would slink into the room. I, I didn't have big commanding presence, but I knew I didn't need to be fearful that God had created me with a spirit of power, love, and self-control, not a spirit of fear. So it became a mantra for me. And as I've come back to it as an adult and as I read through Second Timothy, I realize although that's good, that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. That's great, but that's not meant to be crocheted on a pillow or put on one of those like successful posters, you know, with a guy climbing a mountain, and it's like power, love, self-control. Like it's not designed to be that kind of encouragement. Instead, this is the supporting material. This is the encouragement that comes after the charge. As I read through it, I realize the point isn't that we have a spirit of power, love, and self-control, but the point is the command that came right before it. Let's look at this in verse 6. It says this, 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. It says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And there it is. There's the command. Did you catch it? It says, Fan into flame this gift of God. That's the command. Paul is not writing to Timothy to tell him, hey, you've got this great spirit, go out and get him. He's saying, Timothy, you need to fan into flame this gift of God. And what was the gift of God? Well, we know in Timothy's particular instance, and Paul's saying this gift of God that you got through the laying out of my hands, he's talking about his call to be on mission as this pastor. Saying, Timothy, you've been called. God wants to use you. You are on mission here. That is a gift of God. Fan that into flame. Don't just sit on it. Fan it into flame. Start to work it out in your life. You know, church, I don't know if you realize this, but you are on a mission as well. God has called you, all of you, to be on mission. We've talked about this, about our mission is to make mathetes. That's to make fully devoted followers of Christ. That's what we are called to do. That's our mission. Paul is saying, fan that into flame. Don't just sit on it. Fan it into flame. You are responsible for making fully devoted followers of Christ for making mathetes, and that's what we all participate in doing. So maybe as you think about that, you think, okay, God has put me in this situation, and God has uniquely gifted you and called you to be in the exact situation that you are because you have a unique impact on all of the people around you. So as you see that, God's saying, I want, I want you to fan that into flame. I want you to use these gifts that I've given you. And you know, we often talk about inviting people to church with you. Invite your friends to come to this service. Invite your friends to come with you. And that's not because the end goal is to get them here. The end goal for you and for me is to make them fully devoted followers of Christ. And we know a great way to help that conversation start is to open the door to spiritual things in your conversation with them. And we hope that by inviting them here, that happens for you. That you can invite them, know that they will enjoy the service, know that they'll be greeted warmly, and that afterwards you can talk with them and you can have these spiritual conversations. That's our hope, because that's our mission, that's our calling. That's what we need to fan into flame to make these followers of Christ. And that starts with having the conversation. But before you start to think about how difficult that is, or how overwhelming that seems, I want to remind you what comes right after that command, to fan it into flame. It says, but God did not give you a spirit of fear. You don't need to be fearful of that. 
Remember, he says you have a spirit of power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you and is able to work in those situations and those conversations you have with coworkers and neighbors and family. He says you have a spirit of love. You can have compassion on them and you can deal with them kindly. You have a spirit of self-control that when it goes crazy or when they're doing things that they shouldn't, you can keep a level head about it and you can still invite them and bring them to come. And maybe there are other ways you can do it. All of us, it's going to look a little bit different. For some of you, you're going to say, you know, I really feel like I'm great with kids. I think God's calling me into kids ministry. I'm going to go serve in kids ministry. I'd love to volunteer there. And as we're all making math tastes, you're there, you're helping a teacher, or maybe you're teaching one of the classes, telling these little kids about Jesus and telling about how much Jesus loves them and how they can love Jesus and how they can have faith in him and trust Jesus and how they can serve them with his life. And you've got all these little kids there and you're making little math tastes like little mathetesettes. Like there are all these little kids that you're making mathetesettes and you're doing it. You're making mathetesettes while you're serving in kids ministry. Or maybe you jump into student ministry and you decide to help out in student ministry. You know, in student ministry, you can volunteer and be there not only to help set up or help with other things, but also uh, they have discussion groups where they get together and they talk about what they just learned in student ministry. So you can get in there and you can help talk with these students and help them work through issues in life and realize how to become a fully devoted follower of Christ in all these different areas. Or maybe you decide to jump on one of our, like our front end teams, like parking or greeters or ushers, and, and you're kind of the front lines of welcoming people to West Pines is we're inviting them. You're taking part in making sure that they're greeted with a friendly face outside and inside and they know where to sit and, and they're not distracted so they can come and listen and the conversation can start about their spiritual life. See, all of these are steps that we can take to make fully devoted followers of Christ, to make mathetes together. We can do this as a church. And for you in different roles as well, maybe you're a single, not a single mom, maybe you're a single mom or just a stay-at-home mom. And you've got kids at home. And you're thinking, my primary role is to teach these kids how to be followers of Christ. They are my primary math taste. But you're not only teaching them and taking those little moments to talk with them about God and Jesus and about how they can love and trust and obey him and pray to him, but you're also showing them what a math taste looks like when you engage other parents when you're picking your kids up from school or maybe at the park or maybe when you go to the sporting event and you're there and you can talk with other parents boldly, knowing that you can share your faith with them and you can invite them to come join you and you can interact with them. You're making math taste and you're showing your kids how to make math taste as well. Or maybe as a student, you're in school and you've realized, I'm called to make math taste, so I need to go ahead and interact with these other students that are here and I need to invite them to student ministry and I need to start sharing my faith and I can speak up in class because God hasn't made me fearful and timid, but God's made me powerful and loving so I can respond and I can speak up in class. Or maybe for you at work with the team that you lead, you realize God has placed you there and God has put you in charge of this team. And when you have coworkers that you're interacting with, not only can you lead with power and making sure that you're moving the ball forward as a team, but also you can have love and have compassion on these coworkers. And for some of the coworkers, you realize, you know, they don't necessarily deserve this love right now. They're not actually doing anything where everybody else thinks that they should get a break, but I need to talk with them, and I need to be compassionate toward them. Maybe you offer the opportunity to open the door and start talking about spiritual things when they're having a hard time and they're going through a rough season, be praying for them and talk with them about it. And you can seize the opportunity to have spiritual conversation and invite them to, to church with you and in, invite them into other spiritual parts where you can have conversations with them. Or maybe you started a business and it feels like in your line of work, every other business is just unethical. You have to lie, cheat, or steal to be able to make it. And for you, you feel like, you know what? I know that I can trust God and that he's given me a spirit of self-control and I don't need to just 
fall into line with what everybody else is doing. But I know that I can deal with my business ethically and honor God in the way that I do that because ultimately it's God who gives me business and it's God who grows my business. So I don't need to do what everybody else is doing. I can stand up and I can lead my business ethically. And you're not only making a wise decision yourself and honoring God, but you're also opening the doors for all of your employees to be able to talk with them about spiritual things, about your faith in God. Start to help them understand more about it and start to engage with them. Because we're called to fan this into flame. We're called to to take what's there. Now, have you ever lit like a, a campfire or maybe a charcoal grill? Like there's two ways to do it. You can take the top off the bottle of lighter fluid and dump it on there and like back up 10 feet and throw a match and like it'll go up in a blaze. But really the best way to do it, to start one of those fires, is to start with a little ember, right? You start with something small. Maybe you just light one coal or you start with a small ember in the middle and you fan it into flame. And as you're fanning it and you're providing more and more opportunity for it to grow, you're fanning it and you're providing more and more oxygen for this fire to grow. And that little promise of the fire to come, that little ember that's there, you're fanning into flame into this large enough fire that's either big enough and hot enough for you to cook with or to warm yourself by. And that's what we're being challenged to do. It says fan it into flame. Don't just expect to dump the lighter food and go, but fan it into flame. Work at it. Provide opportunity. Because every time you provide opportunity, it'll start to grow. And every time you provide more fuel for it, more opportunity for it, it'll start to get bigger and bigger. And one day you're going to wake up and realize that you're doing things you never pictured yourself doing. Or maybe you pictured yourself doing it several years down the road, but you're doing it now because God has done this in you. He's given you this spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. And just by fanning it into flame, by working at it and giving God opportunity to do it and stepping out in faith, you've now grown who you are spiritually as well, and you're doing these things you never thought you'd be doing. And for some of you today, you're here, and God somehow arranged for you to be here. Like maybe you've never come to West Pines before, or maybe you've never had these conversations and these spiritual conversations before, but, but God has arranged for you to be here, and he's orchestrated it for you to be here, whether through your own search or through a personal invite. And as you're hearing about all this, you're like, man, that power would be really awesome. That spirit, like, I'd love to have access to that. But it feels like I'm not able to. But I have good news for you as well. God orchestrated it for you to be here, but God has also orchestrated it for you to be made right with God and have access to that same power. The Holy Spirit can give you that same spirit of power, love, and self-control. And here's how you access that power. Belief. You believe believe in Jesus. You believe that you couldn't do it on your own and that God had sent Jesus to die in your place and that he, he died in your place and God rose him from the dead and now you are able to be made right with God by believing and putting your faith in Jesus. Scripture says that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that you'll be saved. It's just that easy. That if you believe, if you have faith, that you'll be saved. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to have a big roaring fire at the end. All you have to have is that little ember of belief. And as you believe in Jesus, and as you tell him you believe in him, he sends the Holy Spirit and starts to make you into something bigger and something stronger. He starts to mold you into more like himself. And if you want to do that, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, I want to make an opportunity for you to do that today. Here's what that's going to look like. In just a moment, we're all going to pray. And as we're praying, I'm going to say some words, and it's a prayer, and I want you to go ahead and repeat this prayer in your heart between you and God. 
It's not for me, not for the people around you. It's between you and God. And as I lead you through that prayer, I want you to tell God that you believe him, that you've put your faith in Jesus and that you need him to rescue you and make you right with God. So let's do that now. Let's, let's all pray. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if that's you, if today you want to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, you want to tell God that you believe in Jesus, here's what I encourage you to do. Repeat these words after me in your heart. Say, Jesus, thank you for making an opportunity for me to be made right with God. God, thank you for providing a way for me to be rescued, for me to be saved. And God, I don't know how it all works, but I know that you say if I believe in you, that I will be saved. So God, I believe in you. I believe that you sent Jesus. And I believe that expressing that, that you promise that you will save me and you will rescue me. God, thank you for doing that. Thank you for saving me. And thank you for providing a way to make me right with God. With everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to pray for you. God, I thank you that you provide faith. Lord, I thank you that you provide a way through Jesus for us to be rescued, for us to be made right with you. And God, I thank you for the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And God, I thank you for those that today put their faith in you for the first time. Lord, we love you. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.